Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Africa Past and Present. Yes, 100. I'm Peter Oleggi. And I'm Peter Lim. And in honor of this special centenary edition of the podcast, we're going to do something special. We went into the Afropod vault. After much listening and reminiscing, we picked some choice material from over 4,000 minutes of podcasts over eight years. Our aim was to patch together segments that broadly represented the earliest and latest episodes, different African countries and regions and themes, and captured notable contributions by speakers on a variety of subjects. We'd also like to take the opportunity to express our heartfelt thanks to the staff at Matrix Digital Lab, and especially our producers over the years, Scott Pennington, Mike Green, Annette Giannino, and Patrick Conway. We also would like to thank our many guest hosts, Ann Bierstecker, Kiki Adozi, Laura Fair, Joe Lauer, Safwa Babana-Hampton, Ibra Sen, Walter Hawthorne, Ola Iribonke, and David Robinson. We are deeply grateful, of course, to Michigan State University's Matrix Center for the Digital Humanities and Social Sciences and the History Department at MSU for their ongoing commitment and support of the podcast, which keeps it free to anyone with an internet connection. And most of all, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for downloading and streaming the podcast from 131 countries and coming to visit our website in huge numbers, over 1 million hits on our website in 2015. You are what makes this labor of love worthwhile. Enjoy this special edition of Africa Past and Present. We start from the very beginning, the first episode, where our guest was Sheikh Babu from the University of Pennsylvania. This segment is followed by Robert Edgar, on oral history in Lesotho, and it closes with Robert Hill on how he became an historian of Marcus Garvey. Hello and welcome to the inaugural podcast of Africa Past and Present. I'm Peter Oleggi. And Peter Lim. And we are podcasting from the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, United States of America. It is uh, January 15th, 2008. And we're launching this podcast because Africa matters, and there's not enough knowledge and information out there in the community, both academic and non, about Africa and its people. If you think of the United States, uh, about one in seven Americans trace their origins to the African continent, and so the American legacy is really one of shared inheritance with Africa. Africa also has global implications, economic ones political ones, and most definitely cultural ones. And we also believe that like other continents, Africa deserves to be studied, deserves to be understood and discussed in its own right. It's an exciting and vibrant forum uh, podcasting, especially for communication, and it opens up a whole new innovative um, horizon for interaction, not just across this country, but with our colleagues, scholars, activists, and, and others in Africa itself. And I might add that there are already websites in Africa with podcasts. One that comes to mind is the, is the excellent online newspaper, The Mail and Guardian in South Africa. Um, and so it's been nice for us here to catch up with our, with our African friends who are already podcasting. So yes, we're looking forward very much to uh, presenting uh, each month um, uh, a range of very interesting uh, interviews, uh, information about events, new books, new projects, conferences, and so on and so forth. We're talking with Sheikh Babu, the author of Fighting the Greater Jihad, Amadou Bamba, and the founding of the Muridia of Senegal, 1853 to 1913, freshly published by the Ohio University Press in the New African Histories uh, series. What should uh, American students and, and non-specialists alike take away from your book? Well, one thing is, is, is you know, um, I hope this will help them understand that Islam is diverse. Uh, to not to see Islam as an essence and not to confuse Islam with Arab culture and Middle Eastern culture. I hope that they understand that Islam is very diverse, that actually it's not very different from the many Christian denominations 
Well, there are differences, of course, because Islam have these core principles, you know, the Quran and all of that. But I think if you look at it, it's really part of human experience. And for Islam to be meaningful to people, uh, it's necessary for people to adapt it to their local culture and to understand it. This doesn't mean that there are many Islams with an S. But this does mean that in Islam, like in any system of belief, you have a sort of dogma. But you have a lot going on around that dogma. You have the everyday religions practice of people. And some aspects of those religion of everyday, that is not the dogma actually, can be shaped by people. I hope that by reading this book, they will understand that, well, you can expect something different in, in, in West Africa, something different in Indonesia, something different in Malaysia, something different in Saudi Arabia and Iran, although all of them claim to be of the same religion, all of them pray the same five prayers, see the Quran and so forth. But beside the dogma and those scriptural aspects of Islam, there is the real Islam of the historians of the people. That is the Islam that people live every day, which really shape their life. And that Islam is much more complicated than what people would claim is, what the Imam, for example, or the Ulama would say is Islam. Well, I was interested in uh, several of the South African exiles who had uh, moved to Lesotho in the late 50s, early 60s. One of them was APM Da, who was a leader of the Youth League. And uh, I've done extensive interviewing with him in the 80s. And the other was Edwin Tabo Mufutsunyana. I, I put the emphasis on Tabo because Govan Mbeki named uh, Tabo Mbeki after him. Uh, but Edwin was living deep up in the mountains. Uh, and so in the late 1970s, when I began this research on a Basutu anti-colonial group called L'Chukla Labafo, uh, I was aware that Mufutsunyana had had contact with them. He was the liaison between the South African Communist Party and this Basutu movement. And so I was very curious to find out if he was still living. And he had left South Africa in 1959. That was the last I knew of him, according to historical records. And so in the late 70s, I started to track him down. And uh, I knew people on the left in uh, Lesotho. And I t was talking with one of them whose father had known Mufutsunyana quite well in the 30s and 40s. And he said, well, Mufutsunyana lives way up deep in the mountains. He's still alive. They hadn't heard that he had died, but he was living deep up in the mountains. And so I decided to track him down, and uh, I borrowed uh, someone's uh, Volkswagen Beetle, and on a overcast uh, Saturday afternoon, I just started going up these horse trails uh, uh, from one uh, trading post to another, inquiring after Mufutsunyana. And finally, after... Uh, uh, I was, the horse trails had gotten narrower and narrower and I was ready to give up. I got to a place where they had heard of Wufutsunyana and they said, well, there's this fellow up on the mountainside, up, up yonder, who knows him very well. And it was like the Swiss Alps with people sort of yodeling <laughs> and calling him down from the mountainside. And he came down and I said, and I introduced myself, explained what I was doing, and of course it was, I was hoping that he would lead me to Edwin, but he agreed to take up a letter on horseback to Edwin, and, uh, and we would see what the response was. And very fortunately, uh, there was an interesting set of circumstances that uh, uh, sort of opened up the door for interviewing uh, Mufutsunyana. Uh, he was a a very uh, committed Bolshevik, uh, but he also believed in his dreams. And uh, throughout his life, he had followed his dreams. Uh, and I had sent this note up, and the, the day before he received my note, he had a, a dream in which uh, an old Basutu politician had appeared to him in the dream, and they had gone for a walk in the mountains. Uh, and at the end of the walk, uh, his friend had turned to Edwin and said, uh, very soon a stranger is going to come to you and you must cooperate with him. Well, very fortuitously, my letter showed up the next day, the stranger. And what was interesting was the debate that went on in his village. Uh, many people were saying, well, these are, these, this fellow is South African security branch. He's trying to trick you. These, you know, he's, they're going to kidnap you if, if you come down. 
Uh, and he said, no, I believe in my dreams. I think this is uh, on the up and up. And so he wrote me this very interesting letter. And we missed each other for a couple of months because of the slowness of mail. But finally, in 1979, we, uh, we hooked up, 1980, actually. Uh, we hooked up, and from there, we became very good friends over the years. Uh, and uh, he was very forthcoming in, in giving me information. But you know, when you're doing research, oftentimes there's very fortuitous uh, happenings that, that take place that open up possibilities for you. And it was quite uh, the coincidence that Mofutsunyana agreed to speak with me because of this dream that he had had. Can we just ask uh, briefly about your own background and how your interest in Garvey and his movement began? Surely. I, I'm a Jamaican and I became aware of Marcus Garvey, um, who is Jamaica's first national hero. I became aware of Garvey through my uncle, who was a journalist. I was 18 years old. I was uh, attending one of Jamaica's leading uh, secondary schools. I was 18 years old, as I mentioned, and I had never heard the name Marcus Garvey up until that point. In a sense, it's a testament to the tremendous success of a British colonial education that it had erased any, any memory of Marcus Garvey in terms of our educational system. And my uncle had written this uh, tribute to Garvey, showed it to me before it was to be published. I read it and I simply couldn't believe that a Jamaican had achieved um, such, a, such an enormous uh, achievement on a world scale. And so I set about trying to rectify that problem. I was invited to participate in an island-wide essay competition that the history teachers of Jamaica, who had just founded a, an association of history teachers, and lo and behold, uh, the, on the list of three topics was the two words, Marcus Garvey. And I said, okay, so this might be an opportunity for me to get to know more about Marcus Garvey. I wrote an essay, and the essay won the, the national prize, and it was announced in the newspaper, and I started getting telephone calls from people who were associated with Marcus Garvey. Now remember, this is 1961, 62, and through meeting them, and they inviting me to come to their meetings, I was drawn uh, more and more into the web of what you might call today popular memory. And that's how I got started, 1961-62. Our next segment picks up from the previous one with Robert Vinson also speaking on Garvey, but this time in South Africa, followed by David Newbury on Rwanda Dorothy Hodgson on Maasai women and indigenous rights, and finally Toyin Falola on Yorubanus. So Robert, how did Garvey's ideas cross the Atlantic, and who spread his message in Southern Africa? Garvey's ideas spread to South Africa uh, primarily through American sailors, uh, African-American sailors, West Indian sailors, who were stopping in, in African ports. In South Africa, it was Cape Town and Durban and Port Elizabeth and East London. And these were sailors who had shore leave for a few days and they would, uh, they would uh, give local blacks copies of Garvey's newspaper, The Negro World, other UNIA literature, and also simply spread the word orally about what was happening in the black world, particularly coming, what was coming out of New York. Now, in Cape Town particularly, there were a group of, of former sailors, most of them from the West Indies, who had settled 
in Cape Town in the previous decades. And they had used their maritime skills to get jobs on the docks, primarily as stevedores. So literally, physically, they were the first to get the news from these sailors on shore leave about what was happening with Garvey and Garveyism. They would read those Negro worlds. They would take those Negro worlds and other literature. Some worked on railways and put those... Uh, that Garvey literature in parcels that would go to other parts of South Africa, particularly Kimberley. And blacks on the other end would open up those parcels and take out that literature and then spread the word that way. Some Negro worlds also made their way into by, by simply the mail. Uh, and so you find in Johannesburg in bookstores, uh, there were Negro worlds and, and other American newspapers, particularly African-American newspapers, readily for sale. So these are some of the ways that Garveyism spread in, in South Africa. We have a fairly rigid view of what we mean by kingship. And a lot of my work has been addressing those external views of the pillars of our understanding of African society. So not only kingship as a form of political expression, of community expression as I see it, but also social identities such as clan identities and uh, many other elements as the role of chronology and the way in which different cultures and political formations use and see chronology as important to their validation. Claiming antiquity, for example, is important for the legitimacy of, a, of the kingdom in Rwanda. And so I've tried to approach these by asking questions about these assumptions that we share and are often shared by uh, Africans as well, but by placing them into their historical context and looking at the emergence of these concepts. And what turns out is that these, are, these concepts end up to be quite contingent and rather frail. And therefore, when the context changes, so does the nature of the institution being discussed. In my forthcoming book, um, Being Maasai, Becoming Indigenous, the efforts of many Maasai um, uh, activists primarily to actually say, all right, fine, so we are, you know, the beautiful people and one with nature and so forth, you know, using those um, stereotypes to then make claims to their links with the indigenous rights movement, the international indigenous rights movement, and, and making claims about being indigenous peoples and so forth, which is, uh, not surprisingly, a somewhat controversial claim in an African context, um, and especially in a country like Tanzania, where there really wasn't the kind of large extent of settler populations as in South Africa, or even to some extent in Kenya. Um, and, and so my work is not trying to assess are their claims true or false, but really trying to understand historically and ethnographically how and why they're making those claims and what are the kinds of political possibilities as well as limitations that that, that kind of political positioning um, allows. Because the, the large overriding question is about, um, you know, what are really the political opportunities in this contemporary world for a people like Maasai who've been long marginalized, who, you know, I, I've spent my career documenting you know, the kind of decades of struggles that they've had to try to retain their land, to, to um, have control over their livelihoods, to have really self-determination in the broadest sense of the word. And in your book, your memoir, A Mouth Sweeter Than Salt, which I was just rereading, uh, you describe beautifully what it was like to grow up steeped in Yoruba culture and Yoruba history. Becoming Yoruba is the title of one of the chapters, and it seems like that meant that, that Yoruba has kind of provided a syllabus of life uh, for you, uh, a vocabulary of knowledge, the proverbs, the songs, the idioms, uh, all these tools and codes to, to navigate places, relationships, situations. How did these experiences and forces shape you as a scholar uh, and as a historian? Thank you, and I will start with the depressing one that those situations that you've just described are fast disappearing. Now we now have Africans who cannot speak African languages. We have Yoruba children who cannot speak Yoruba. I'm not talking about Yoruba born in Michigan. I'm talking about Yoruba born in Lagos and Ibadan. Um, I use, at a, at a very early age, 
was able to perform in, in drama, in festivals so easily, you didn't have to coach me. Today, if you go to Ibadan or Lagos that you want to recruit uh, uh, people to stage a drama, you have to do an enormous amount of work to train them and keep training them. Uh, I've done two projects that collapsed because I couldn't get people to train. And fundamentally, the reasons have to do with your question. The things that we, we did casually, that we assumed to be organic, as part of growing up, uh, they are no longer so. Um, because within the settings of compounds, within the settings of, of township and cities, this growth were connected with languages, with interactions with people, with day-to-day -day experiences and practices. So it's not that you, it's not that they were formal, but you grew up with it and then you began to internalize them. And we must also return to the fundamentals of um, training. Uh, people have always criticized the British and French for, for good reasons, of course. Imperialism is bad. But one of the things they tend to also forget is that by and large, in some situations, they actually did not allow many of these cultures to, to degenerate. They were teaching us in Yoruba in school. English just became secondary. So, so but today, now, they, they, they're not teaching those languages. They're not emphasizing the primacy of, um, of English. So in some ways, the school system also reinforced um, many of those practices. Uh, drama competitions, cultural performances, all over what was called the Western region were there in which schools competed. And I, I competed in singing, I competed in drama, and, 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 and those, that formal system also reinforced the organic and formal ones. In the next segment, Paul Lovejoy speaks to slavery's legacy on racism in today's world. Then Gwendolyn Hall and Walter Hawthorne discuss their slave biographies online digital project. We have to understand that the modern world is based on slavery. We would not be where we are today without the slavery that happened. And slavery is uh, an embarrassment. Uh, slavery is uh, undignified. Mm -hmm. Slavery is something everyone wants mm -hmm. to forget, uh, especially people who uh, ancestors uh, at one time or another were either enslaved or were the ones who were actually doing the enslaving. And in both sides, nobody wants to remember that inglorious past. On the other hand, uh, like other things that have happened in history, if we just ignore it and forget it, then we're doomed to continue to live in a racist society that will continue to reinvent how racism Acti is activated uh, precisely because it's all based on that slavery um, embarrassment. And the, the, the question becomes, is when, when do students, when do children learn about slavery, how and where, and who are they when they learn? Because if it's, if it's one black kid in, an, in a classroom with 35 white kids, and then one day out of nowhere the subject of slavery has come down. You'll find out that that one black kid isn't going to say anything. And you're going to find out that there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of other things that are going on in the classroom that don't need to be there. But because of the silence around the issue of slavery, um, then we don't want to confront the issues of it. And the issues related to it is racism. Uh, that lingers through the world, and it's an astonishment that we still have uh, strong racism everywhere. Why is it astonishing? Because we know that most or very large percentage of all popular modern culture is African-derived. And so we don't have any problem with that, jazz, blues, rap, uh, theater, painting, on and on and on and on. We don't have any problem saying, look at all the African influence here. Okay, we have all that African influence here, so why do we still have racism?
Well, this is a, pro a new project that's been recently funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and its purpose is to create a best practices slave database using Cora, which is has been developed and operate and operates through Matrix here at MSU, and Matrix is one of the leading institutes for digital humanities in the country. Uh, the purpose of the of this particular project is to be able to create collaboration among scholars from all over the world as long as they have access to the internet so that we can communicate with each other and we can all uh, enter the data that we find about slaves in documents throughout the Atlantic world. So what kind of data are we talking about? Okay. Well, these, these, this, these data come from descriptions of, of particular slaves, individual slaves, in, in a great variety of documents. They, they could be sales of slaves, they could be manumissions, they could be descriptions of an entire estate contain, containing slaves, they could be uh, gifts, of, gifts of slaves, rentals of slaves, and each of these documents has a more or less detailed description of each slave. Since slaves were property, surprisingly to many people, there's much more information about slaves than there is about free people in documents, in, in historical documents, of course. Uh, and so these documents will describe the slave just as if you were buying a house, you'd describe the house or a car. You'd put the put, describe the car and say what kind it is and the model number. In the case of slaves, it would describe the slave so that it could be clear what this piece of property is. The data that we have can tell you a great deal about, in many situations, about from where slaves came in the interior of Africa. Um, so what we have right now mostly is collections of documents that were documents created here in the Americas, although we will have and we do have some that were created in Africa. Um, and these documents in many situations are slaves saying an African name or saying I am from a particular place in the interior of Africa or I am from a particular mm -hmm. African ethnic group. Um, what you can then do with that data is to compile it all into this database and to run statistical analysis. So you can figure out then what percentage of slaves came from Mandinka territories, what percentage of slaves in the area of Africa I study were of Balanta descent or Papel descent or Biafata descent. Um, and you can begin then to make some conclusions about where they came, again, from within the continent. We know how many slaves got on at a particular port, but the Atlantic Slave Trade Database can't tell us anything about that interior slave trade, about where slave production is occurring. Now, something else about our database is we have lots of information about, um, on the American side, about where slaves ended up in the interior of the Americas. Um, so we know that lots of slaves are on this plantation, lots of slaves are on that plantation. We can tell you for, um, um, in uh, many situations, what the percentage of slaves in a major city, New Orleans, or on a large plantation um, in Louisiana, in Brazil, in Cuba, what percentage come from particular ethnic groups. Um, so what our data can then um, be used to do, um, I think, um, one of the many things, is to, is to trace slaves from particular parts of the interior of Africa to particular places in the Americas and make then these connections. And those sorts of digital things are often uh, implicit in many of our podcasts. And the, the following segment actually focuses squarely on digital work. From Sean Jacobs on the origins of what is now an incredibly popular Africa is a Country blog, to Laura Sia on Twitter and African politics in the Congo, and a special roundtable podcast that was recorded on site at the NUSA 2008 conference. And now you're well known in the world of blogging as, as Leo Africanus. And why did you start blogging as Leo Africanus? And then who's your audience? What's your experience like? I mean, I wouldn't say that, the, you know, that I'm already like a big blogger. There are other bloggers, I think, that are 
you know, sort of blogging on Africa, like Kenyan, Kenyan Pundit is a very popular and big blogger. There's a number of bloggers, particularly around the mainland Guardian, the South African newspaper, right. who have done well. There's a blogger in New York, Tony Caron, who's a time uh, editor at Time Magazine, who I think is an excellent blogger. So I'm just starting with this. Um, Leo Africanus, why I picked that name? Leo Africanus is, for people who don't know, he's a 16th century uh, diplomat um, in the court of the Sultan of Fez. And he was kidnapped by pirates, taken to Rome, where um, it's unclear about you know what was the nature of his relationship with Pope Leo. Um, I think Leo X, and he, I think it was sort of advisory. It was a kind of, um, you know, people view him as either a charlatan, other people think he's a reporter. Some there's a book that's called he's a, was you know, kind of the way he maneuvered. Uh, I think it's called Tricksters. I forgot the title about it, but he ended up writing a book called The Description of Africa, which is sort of a mixture of you know, uh, made-up stuff, truths, half-truths, etc., and dealing with European stereotypes of Africa. And I felt that living in the United States, you know, I'm not in South Africa anymore, but I, as I, I study media, and I felt that the, the thing I could do best was to monitor regular news about news about Africa and sort of taking the persona of Leo Africana. It's a little ambitious, but I felt, you know, it fits where I'm. He travels, um, he picks up things. I also lived in London briefly. So I felt, you know, maybe I could bring that to the table. The readers that come to the site, they primarily, because of the nature of the Internet, they are based in the U.S. Most of the readers come from the U.S. A um, couple of readers in Western Europe. And, of course, because of the way that the web works in Africa, people's access to the Internet, particularly from South Africa. Um, I just actually found out one of the regular, just to, like, you know, tell an anecdote of one of the readers, there was a regular reader who, who uh, named himself Ibn Battuta, <laughs> who you also know is another uh, sure. traveler of sorts. And he always had, you know, very biting comments on some of the stuff I put on the blog. And recently um, I met him. And it turns out he's, he's a, it's a writer, a Nigerian writer, Teju Cole, who's written a, um, a sort of fictional kind of a memoir of a visit that he took to back to Lagos. And we're now talking, me, him, and another blogger who's an in Berkeley, California, Koran Teng, I forgot his name, he's from Ghana. We're thinking about a blog in which we can all combine forces. Interesting. You know, a sort of African, basically Africans living in America and sort of, you know, um, the equivalent of something like, I don't know if you know, Crooked Timber, which is an American blog where a, a group of bloggers come together and talk about politics and sports and, and the arts. What do you see as the future in terms of social media in the African context, uh, not just in the African studies context? Yeah, I think it's it's amazing, and, it, and there's some amazing potential there. Um, Twitter use in a place like Eastern Congo is still relatively low because bandwidth is expensive and airtime is expensive and data plans are, are still you know out of reach for most people who are live on extraordinarily low levels of income every day. Um, but maybe but Kinshasa would be very different. Yeah, or I think, or you know, Kigali and Kampala, mm -hmm. I mean, there people are, are deeply engaged with social media. I mean, I one of my favorite things to do on Twitter is watch the, watch the young Ugandan professional class challenging their leaders who are also on Twitter. I mean, that's what's fascinating. There are a lot of government ministers now and members of parliament and, you know, the, the, head, of the, the, the head of the military is on Twitter, um, Lieutenant General Wamala, and, you know, to, to exchange with them and say, well, you say there's no corruption, but I was just asked to pay a bribe by employee X in this office. And, and you know, sort of trying to build that public accountability. I mean, I think the potential is is really incredible. And it's giving people a platform for the voices that they already had. I mean, one of my least favorite terms that people throw around is voice for the voiceless. Um, I, I hate it when people claim I'm, I'm a voice for the voiceless in Africa. No, you're not. Um, you're 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 not listening to the to the people you're claiming to speak for, and and you're co-opting them, and you're you're taking their 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 space away. But what people don't have necessarily, or haven't had in the past, is a platform, a way to get their ideas out there, a way to challenge authority, um, a way to organize. And and I think that social media is providing that in a very very powerful way. Um, so if you are Ugandan, you can start a podcast or you can start a YouTube series and you have, you know, if you live in the city, at least you have the bandwidth to, to broadcast it. <laughs> and, um, I have my students, um, engage with people in Africa on Twitter, um, host tweet chats, things like that to, you know, I mean, it's one thing to read the theory in a book, but it's quite another when, when a student says something that maybe is 
you know, well-intentioned, but a little naive, a little misinformed. And to, to, to not, not have, about no, of course not, talking. but to have me, you know, to have me say, well, that I don't think most Africans would agree with you is quite different from 20 Africans jumping on you and saying, you know, that's really prejudiced or that's really not, not how we live. And, and you have an outdated view and, and here's what you need to know. Um, it's, it's a really powerful teaching tool and it, you know, it's cheap and easy for, for both of us on both ends. No, I'm just wondering if you're unintentionally uh, potentially revolutionizing the undergraduate teaching process, because um, if you think about the academic uh, labor process, if you're teaching about five hours um, of lectures per week, let's say to undergraduates in one class, on average, professors would spend about 10 to 15 minutes at the end of a lecture on question time. Well, you could give them five podcasts and they could go away, and you can run about to conferences and write papers and spend one seminar with them putting together the question time that they had after they'd listened to the podcast. Well, I think Darlene is the revolutionary. She's just given us all a revolutionary idea. <laughs> Actually, uh, well, I, I do have one thing to say about that, which is that, um, I mean, I have, there, there's a big debate, well, within podcasting, there's a big debate about whether to use podcast as a replacement for the in-class lecture and uh, or as a supplement to it so you know in the same way that you would you know put up your lecture notes for students to use and the same problem manifests itself as putting up your lecture notes which is the people stop coming right but I think a more imaginative way of thinking about that is that um, so maybe what you want to do is maybe you have some some information that you really need them to know but you don't need them to be in class to do it and you might want to use your class time for something else um, then, then you might consider recording that lecture so that in class you have time to really discuss, you know, a whole book or, um, you know, to take them to a museum or to have them work on a research project. You know, I think it, it, it opens up some possibilities of kind of taking the lecture time, offsetting the lecture time to a time when it's convenient for you and then using the class time for something else. And I'd just add that it's, podcasts are only one of these new media. So if you think yeah. about IT developments and the way we use email with students sending in their views on, on readings and things. So, uh, and then someone today in the business meeting suggested video conferencing to replace eventually NUSA. So if you think about all these different options, we don't want to get back to that now. So when you supplement uh, podcasts, email, video conferencing, Skype, and so on and so forth, then there's a lot of exciting ways. We're already probably a lot of us using video in the classroom. Uh, but of course, you can also have streaming video now, and you can have video with Skype. I would never want to impose on anybody staring at us for half an hour. So the vodcast is, is definitely not a format we're going to be pursuing in the near future. Um, but I like what Elizabeth was was putting forth as, you know, the podcast potentially opening up time for other classroom activities, which often are much more engaging for students than the sort of, you know, one-way conversation that often happens in the big lecture hall. So that's that's something to look into. And we occasionally take the podcast on the road. In the next two segments, Peter Lim interviews Terry Ranger on African studies, past and present, and Diana Jeter about African voices and the bias of colonial sources. I'm with Professor Terence Ranger, one of the founders and central figures in the making of African studies and the doyen of African historians at the conference on Terence Ranger and the making of African studies here at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Professor Ranger, welcome to Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, the conference papers um, range across so many themes that you have made your own and driven forward to new scholarly heights from, say, African resistance and African agency to spirituality and landscape, violence and patriotic history. Looking back now on a full 50 years of critical engagement in Africa and its study, what do you think uh, might be the big issues that still confront Africa, and particularly us as scholars? What has been achieved and what challenges remain? 
A great deal has been achieved, obviously. But if we were to take uh, the country that I know best, Zimbabwe, um, it's taken a very long time for various reasons for a really dynamic and secure indigenous historical scholarship or anthropological scholarship to emerge. That's happened in the last decade and is coming to a fruition now and is represented in the new single volume history of Zimbabwe. So in a way you could say that it's just beginning. I've been saying for nearly 50 years that the participation of Zimbabwean scholars with their command of the indigenous languages and the context is going to transform particularly the kind of work that I've been doing on identity and belief and so forth. And so that's just now getting underway and hopefully in the next period there are going to be transformations of that kind of work. The book was also inspired by my concern after I had become an expert on Zimbabwe, as I was uh, frequently introduced, that all the experts on Zimbabwe uh, that got their work published, or almost all of them, appeared not to be Zimbabwean. And I felt deeply uncomfortable about this, uh, the question of talking on behalf of or for an entire other people whose culture I had learned only in my adult years and which I had learned from books in the basement of SOAS Library in the anthropology section. Of course, that understanding had been deepened by my subsequent interaction with Africans in many different uh, contexts within Zimbabwe, but still I felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable as a privileged white person being an expert on Zimbabwe and Zimbabweans. And so the other reason why I carried out uh, the research underlying my second book was uh, because I felt, well, if there's one group of whites that I can legitimately research, it is the ones that claimed to be experts on Zimbabwean Africans, the ones like me. So I was interested in these translators and the people who wrote about what Africans meant by the words that they used and who reframed African culture and laws and um, institutions such as bride wealth in a way that they could be turned into English language law and uh, could be used by the lawyers to control Africans. And as I say, this has all been very unfortunate because what I ended up arguing in that book was that uh, our entire canon our entire knowledge in the academy of Zimbabwean culture and Zimbabwean history is based ab initio upon people who did not really listen to Africans, did not fully understand what Africans had told them, and therefore had fundamentally misrepresented and misunderstood everything about, almost everything about this culture. If the previous segment focused largely on Zimbabwe, this segment here focuses very much on literature and language from Nigeria to Tanzania and beyond. The first is Pius Adesani on African literature, followed by Deon Konyani on endangered small languages in uh, Tanzania. Chicha Twala uh, recounts his Izibongo, his praise poem from South Africa. And finally, there's a memorable poetic episode when the famous Kenyan poet Abdullatif Abdallah uh, recites his poem, Siwati. But yeah, at some point, I, I had to start confronting uh, that, that question of the imperialism of African literatures in European languages. I don't want, I, I, I don't want, to, I don't want to steal the term of your, <laughs> of Adia and Gugi, Europhone literatures and all that, you know, because I, I grew up, you know, suffused in, in the Yoruba world, the Yoruba imagination and all that. That's my, you know, primary language and all that. So I, I grew up in the world of the folktale, in the world of the riddles and all that. And um, so at some point, it, it started to really get to me that, you know, first I couldn't really write 
in in Europe. I, I write very good Europe, but I can't put all the uh, mm. the the markers and the intonations and 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 and, 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 and what have you. So that got me interested in uh, what would be, what do I do? How do I teach this language? How do I invest in it? How do I place it alongside all my work, you know, in English and in French? Do I go the Chinoachebe route, you know, some, but nobody can really do it. Nobody can. It's, it's uh, the English he invented to carry his own world. I think it's a unique historical moment. I don't think it can be replicated. You know, so I find other ways around it. A little of Ngugi here, a little of uh, the Ngugi approach here, a little of the Achebe approach here, to find my own ways of expressing myself uh, in English, but uh, it's still completely you know, yeah, Yoruba, that is, that is, so I don't write exclusively in Yoruba, mm -hmm. uh, sadly. Sometimes in my teaching, I do introduce texts in, in the Yoruba language and all that, but again, it's got to be translated and mm -hmm. all that, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's something mm -hmm. I'm happy to do alongside my work in, Eng in English, you know, sure. yeah. Well, if you think about it, you, you, might, you might also find that language is not just a tool of communication. It is also uh, a library. Language tends to, um, to be a depository of all kinds of knowledge. And for societies that have existed in different environments in this world, language reflects their survival in that particular environment. And a good example of that is how traditional societies uh, may have used things like herbs. And so you find uh, a lot of other linguists who are doing endangered languages study ethnobotany, mm. especially, particularly for the benefits that we may get from, uh, from plants and things like that. And so one big reason why we should work to at least preserve some material about these languages is that the languages are some form of a library. If a language dies, that library also dies. Imagine you have an old person in a community who knows a lot. It's like the encyclopedia of the community. Uh, if that knowledge from that person doesn't go to another person, that is a library, that's an encyclopedia that has disappeared. So we want to preserve that. But there is also another reason, and that is for linguists uh, like me. We seem to be grappling every day with the question of what is the nature of language? How is language structured? And we have c come up with different sorts of ideas of what things we find common in all languages and so on. But every now and then we are challenged by data from a language that had not been studied before. And so when it comes up, we get new knowledge, we get new ideas, new theories about language. So if a language disappears, again, some sort of data disappears with that language. A third reason is the fact that we want to preserve diversity in, in human culture. Uh, taking our hint from biology, the more diverse we are, the, the better. Utwala umzimkulu, wanaswel wamkondua duma, uduma njengezulu, we nantombe mabele mate, now, in this form, as I said, in short, it talks about not abandoning my conviction, come what may. Despite the tortures I was going through, I will continue to believe in what I believe in. So it says, Siwati nshishielo, Siwati, kwa niniwate? Siwati ni lilo hilo talishika kwa vyovyote. Siwati ni miminalo hapano au popote. Hadi kaburini sote miminalo tufukiwe. Siwati ngaadhibiwa adhabu kila mifano. Siwati ni ngaambiwa tapawa kila kinono. Siwati lilo sawa. Silibandui mkono. Hata ninga umuameno mkono siubandui. Siwati si ushindani mukasema na shindana. Siwati ifahamuni sababu ya waungwana. Siwati ndangu imani ni thaminio sana na kuiwata naona itakuwa ni muhali. Siwati ni meradhiwa kufikwa na kila mawi. 
Siwati ningaambiwa niaminio hayawi siwati kisha nikawa kama nzi hivyo siwi thama na kariri siwi na Mungu nisaidia The podcast often has MSU speakers and guests as well as visitors who come from all over the world to give talks on campus Here are some segments from both colleagues at MSU and also distinguished guest speakers We start with the Senegalese historian Pendambao on her role as a public intellectual. Wando Achebe then follows with comments about her work on gender and the female king in Ibo land. Igabo Chipande, currently a lecturer at the University of Zambia in Lusaka and MSU PhD on football and social change in Zambia. And how can we deal with modernity? And how can we deal with institution if without changing our society? It is why, for me, I use my knowledge from history and try to do the work on the basic situation. And modernizing and giving freedom to individuals means two things for me. Means engagement and commitment of intellectual who knows and have a clear project of society, which means also using women's position to modernize and shift the society. Of course, you have a lot of resistance because I use generally something our society didn't accept. For example, I faced and deal with the caste system. The caste system. system. Yeah. Mm. It was something very difficult mm. during the 80. And I was alone some time. And after that, I deal with the position of women in the society. Where Islam is all the time used to push women out of the private, out of the public sphere. And all the time when I try to deconstruct all the situation, I have a lot of resistance. Resistance from, you know, the religious group, resistance from even some women who didn't, you know, understand. And I didn't accept to compromise myself because I know why mean knowledge if I don't accept to make a sacrifice for my, for my society? At the beginning, it was very difficult. Ahibiu Babe, in her attempt to achieve what I call full manhood, which is total and complete manhood, she's already become a headman, she's become a warrant chief, she's become a king, but she decides that that's not enough for her. It's not enough for her in part because it was foreign institutions or foreign cultures that aided her transformation into headman, the British aided that, warrant chief came entirely out of the British institution, the institution of king, becoming a king, came out of Igala land. None of this came out of her Igbo land. So it's almost as though to prove to her people, I am not just a man, I am a full man. Ahibu Wabe did something that was totally and completely unheard of. She came out with her own masquerade, and this masquerade was called Ebe Ahibi, and it was the most beautiful masquerade that the community had ever seen. So coming out with a masquerade means that that masquerade undresses in front of you. So Ahibi had, in essence, gone through the initiation, the Iwa Ifuma, unveiling the masquerade. She claimed to be a full man. Yes, she was part of it. So in a particular episode, climactic episode in this book, the community seizes the masquerade from Ahibi. In the life of the community, there are festivals where masquerades perform, they dance, they greet the elders of the community. So Ahibi Wabe brought out her at their masquerade to greet the oldest men in the community and to pay them honor and, you know. And when this masquerade approached the oldest man, he took off his hat, which is a symbol that something, an abomination had happened. And he spoke to Ahibi directly and said, what, what are you doing? Don't you know that it's an abomination for a woman to bring out a masquerade? And that's all he said. And he just sort of signaled to his boys to escort the masquerade from the festival to the back. And this masquerade was never seen again. So they seized this masquerade. This was the beginning of the end of Ahibi's power. From that point on, once they seized this masquerade, 
her power as supernatural because she had she had constructed herself as supernatural. She had these medicine men come in and concoct these medicines that were believed to make her supernaturally powerful. In fact, they believed that these medicines would usurp the soul of other individuals and use that to make her supernaturally powerful. But once this masquerade was seized, her power just unraveled. You had this wonderful photograph of Kaunda's team, sort of the cabinet, all in soccer kit. That's correct. Looking, That's correct. looking very athletic. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So he, he, he even had a cabinet football team, which he regularly featured in himself as well. And they played against select you know, teams, maybe a team of mayors or a team of retired uh, football players. And they used this as kind of a way to showcase, uh, firstly, to connect, to show that they, you know, they're, they're able to connect with the, the masses and at the same time also enjoy the game and relax themselves. And, and, and as you indicated, uh, Professor Lim, um, even the national team was kind of uh, nicknamed after Kaunda himself as the KK-11. And we close with a couple of segments on what we could call the art of life. Ken Harrow discusses new trends on African cinema. And the cartoonist Jimga from Nigeria talks about political cartooning addressing the ills of society. Well, everything becomes conventional after, after a while. So the conventions of postmodernism are that the, that the line between high culture and, and popular culture um, has become effaced. And um, this is what has been resisted by African filmmakers for up, until the, uh, up until the mid-1990s. That is to say, African filmmakers saw their charge as not entertaining an audience, but educating an audience. And those few, few exceptions, um, like Henri Duparc, who's uh, Ivoirian, who tried to make films that were more entertainment films, were trashed, in fact, by the critical reception that, that was given to them for, for those reasons. Since the mid-1990s, since the Ghanaians first started making video films and now the Nigerians have picked it up, there have been thousands of video films made on the continent. And that has actually saved African cinema from its demise. Yeah, these uh, great cartoonists have a lot of um, things in common, a lot. Um, the first is uh, they are people, you know, that to me, they've actually taken artistic responsibility. Because we, like um, a particular scholar puts it, that there are several, there are different types of artists. There are some, you know, that believe in solving the problems of aesthetics through the use of strokes, colors, and all that. But others believe in solving the problems of the society through the use of strokes and colors. So, and these are the people that have actually taken artistic responsibility. So I really, really believe in that statement. And also, Chino Achebe, you know, in, his, in his, uh, the book he wrote before he died, of blessed memory, uh, there was a country. Chino Achebe said that uh, if a society is healed, you know, the artist has the right to point it out. So these people, Zapiro, Mike Asuko, and, you know, several other cartoonists in Africa, Gadu, uh, Victor Asuwata, there are so many, you know, they've actually taken that responsibility of bringing out the hills in the society. And finally, to leave you with something particularly striking, we have a folk song performed by the South African Umkonto Wisizwi veteran Barry Gilder, who performs the Matola song, uh, and it is perhaps a fitting way to end this special centenary episode in a way that brings together our themes of African history, politics and culture in a very poetic way. And we look forward to the next centenary. Okay, the song I'm going to sing under this uh, inordinate pressure from, from you guys it's called the Matola song, and it, it's a song that I wrote for a very good friend of mine uh, who became my friend in the camp in Angola. Uh, I knew him as Mangoba, which means conqueror. Um, his real name, which I only learnt much later, is Mduduzi uh, Guma, who was uh, an attorney in Durban, involved in ANC underground in Durban, had to leave the country. And he was killed in... 1981, January 1981, in an apartheid army uh, attack on, uh, 
on an ANC house in, in Mozambique, Matola, outside Maputo in Mozambique. And, and I only discovered uh, about his death when I came back from, from Moscow in, in 1981. So the song was, was written for him. You will what? I just heard of your battle, my friend And that for you the war has come to an end You hardly had time to cock your gun Somebody suddenly switched off the sun But I'm still alive Curse the war, I'm still alive Holding your cock gun in my hand Your picture was flashed all over the world Your flesh in shreds, your limbs grotesquely curled But your face was so dark I could not tell What did you see the moment you fell? But I'm still alive Curse the war, I'm still alive Holding your cock gun in my hand to joke in our free time in the sun about which one of us would get to be the first one to see the enemy crumble in our sights To feel that unspeakable joy of the people's might But I'm still alive Curse the war, I'm still alive Holding your cock gun in my hand my song I know you would grin saying what kind of a dirge is this that you sing why don't you sing something about victory Of how my small death might help it to be For I'm still alive Don't curse the war, I'm still alive There in that cock gun in your hand Yes, I'm still alive, don't you curse the war, I'm still alive. There in that cock gun in your hand.
Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.